house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Mikir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mikir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of, your, of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should regard for, show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, your love is so inexpressible that we find definitions elusive. We find our vocabulary as broad or as primitive as they might be inadequate to be able to describe your goodness toward us as your people. And so, Lord, the best that we have is pictures, or pictures. To see pictures of what your love shows us. To show us pictures of of, of pieces of art, experiences that real life humans have have had of who you are, of of your generosity, of your extravagance, of your kindness, of your transformative power, of your grace, of your mercy. So, Lord, what I ask today is that you would paint yet another picture for us. That we would be able to hone in that definition of your love just a little bit clearer. That we would be drawn and provoked to worship just a little bit deeper and a little bit richer. Oh, God, I, I want my people just to love you more. I want to love you more. May that be the effect of your word on us today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I can remember one particular time when I was a kid and growing up. And and you know how how boys especially do? How we kind of get in in dad comps, right? Like dad competitions. 
And so we, we really like to, to boast about how our dad is the biggest and the baddest dad of all the dads. Our dad is the fastest and the strongest dad of all the dads, right? And so one little boy starts talking about his dad, and the other little boy starts talking about his dad. And before you end up, you've got like the, the Avengers of, of, of all the dads, right? And, and I can remember one particular time being at my, my cousin's house, and all of us, there, there were a bunch of cousins that were there, and we were all having, having dad competitions. And I can remember my oldest cousin that was in the room, she spoke up, and she said something to me that she didn't say to anyone else. And I remember, and, and it was so powerful to me that I remember it to this day. I was probably Gracie Kate's age or younger, eight or nine years old at the time, and I still remember it vividly to this day. So we're all going around, we're having the dad competition, and I remember she stopped and she said, Dad, you know, Cody, your dad really is the best. He really is the best. He's the kind of guy that makes me smile when I'm around him. He's the kind of guy that always helps people that are in need. I've, I've seen him do this and I've seen him do that. And I'll be honest with you, man, I was kind of puffing up a little bit. And I, and, I, and I started thinking about my dad and I thought, well, I just always thought he was just a regular old dad. I mean, I, I thought he was... He was pretty great, but you seem to think that he's the greatest dad of all the dads. And so I started, I started thinking about my dad, and I started thinking about the things that she was saying. And it just so happened, and I still remember this, it just so happened that, it, that her saying that coincided with something else that had just happened um, that I thought was pretty awesome. I remember one day we were coming home, and on, we live on Red Road 55, all right? You got to be a local to know where that is. And there's a steep curve on Red Road 55 as you come around the curve, and it'll, it'll get you if you're not familiar with it. And I remember that we were coming around that curve, and on the other side of it, some teenagers had, had pretty much ripped off their dad's truck, I think, and they had slid all, up off the road into the ditch. And I remember my dad, he went and he dropped us off at home, and he went and he helped them pull that truck out of the ditch and make sure that everything was straight so that they wouldn't get busted by their dad and have to call their dad and, and hear about it. You know what I'm talking about. And so I remember her telling me about how highly she thought of my dad and all the things that she had seen in him. And then I remember taking that story that had just happened and thinking, I guess my dad really is that great. Like, I, I, I guess my dad really is that good. And you, I, the first time in my life I remember thinking this, I guess that's who we hells are supposed to be. I guess that's who we hells are supposed to be. I guess that's who I'm supposed to be. That I'm supposed to be the kind of guy that helps other people. I'm supposed to be the kind of guy that makes you laugh. I'm supposed to be the kind of guy that you can depend on and that you can count on because that's who I am. That's who my dad is. That, that's the name that I have, right? And so there's this, this, this pride in who my dad is and there's this sense of responsibility in who I am supposed to be. And I think that well illustrates who we are to be as Christians. Christian is a type of last name, you see. Christian is a type of last name. You can't go and work in soup kitchens and you can't give, write a big enough check to the church and you can't teach Sunday school for enough years so that that makes you a Christian. You can't earn a last name. You can't work for a last name. A last name is given to you. But a Christian may well give generously and may well serve sacrificially and may teach 
faithfully, not so that they become a Christian, but because that's their last name. That's who they are. That's who we are. And that really lays the foundation for what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 9. The question comes up is why does David do what he does? Why is David as generous as he is to someone who nobody else even recognizes and nobody else really even cares about? Why is it that the events of 2 Samuel chapter 9 transpire at all? When we come to 2 Samuel chapter 9, for the first time in David's life, he's really in peacetime, okay? All of the battles have been won. Israel is in her golden age, and it's kind of that first point in your life where you get to sit down and think, I can breathe for a second. And so what we're seeing in David is that which he most wants to do when he has the opportunity to do it. This is the first thing that comes into David's mind when David isn't concerned with the immediate threats that might be coming against the throne or the immediate threats that might be coming against Israel. In other words, this is what's really in his heart to do. This isn't what he has to do. That's all been taken care of. This isn't what he's being forced to do. This is who David is. This is what David wants to do. And what we get is a glimpse both of God's love toward us and a a challenge toward what our love should be toward other people. Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see, first of all, that God's love is determined. God's love is determined. There are in the Bible, in both the New Testament and in the Old Testament, there are certain words that are like neon, written in neon, right? They're like they're, they're, When you come across them, they're supposed to sound off a siren that says, really pay attention here, lock in here, you're about to learn something, you're about to see something that's, that's very important. And one of those words is the word the Hebrew word hased. It comes up three times in, the past, in this passage. I have Two on the time, one in verse one there, and it comes up again in verse three. And it's the same word that we saw in the book of Ruth that refers to the love of God. Now, remember what we said in the book of Ruth that it refers to the love of God, but it's really more than that. It's really a bigger picture than that. That that, that it refers to love, but it's more than love. It, it, it's a word that sometimes is translated as loyalty, but it's, it's more than loyalty. It's, it's more than this commitment and resolve to the covenant. It's sometimes a word, and if you have a King James Version, it's probably often translated as loving kindness. And you can even see they're taking two words and, and smushing them together so that they can try to give you some idea of how significant this word is. But the definition is elusive because it's, it's more than kindness too. It's, it's kindness, but it's in abundance. It's, it's love, but it's, it's extravagant. It's, it's loyalty, but it's not abstract. It's practical. It's, it's concrete. It's in the real world. It's something that, that you experience in your everyday life. It's something about God that you're, you're able to know and you're able to point to and you're able to, to not just have intellectually, but to feel in your emotions and to experience in the things that you're doing. And so it's, it's this word, it's written in neon, that's meant to sign, that, that sound a, a siren that, that draws in our attention. But it's a word that we're meant to spend a lifetime trying to hone in on the definition of it. Because we can't fully comprehend it. 
And so we're literally supposed to spend our lives trying to fathom and comprehend the nature and the magnitude of what this word means to us and then through us. And that picture becomes even clearer in 2 Samuel chapter 9. That what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 9 adds another dimension to the nature of this chesed love that comes up three times in the chapter. And what I think we're supposed to see about it in 2 Samuel chapter 9 is that God's love is determined. That Hased love is promise-keeping love. It's commitment-keeping love. It's covenant-keeping love. It it is the kind of love that is is wonderfully stubborn. It's persistent. It's, It's dedicated. It's relentless. It's determined. It can't, it has no off switch. It just keeps on and keeps on and keeps on. We see this in a couple of different dimensions. If you'll notice, you have the same question asked twice. Once in verse 1 and again, again in verse 2, uh, in verse 3. But there's a slight alteration. And in that alteration, you're able to see that there are really two motivating factors that are in David's mind for what he's doing. Okay, so it says in verse 1, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for what? For Jonathan's sake. For Jonathan's sake. And so I think what we're supposed to see about Hesed, about the love of God and its determination, is that it is determined to keep promises. It's determined to keep promises. If you go and you read 1 Samuel chapter 20, what you see is that David and, and Jonathan made a promise to one another that they would look after one another's houses, that they would not forget one another's offspring. That Jonathan, knowing that David was going to become king and likely his fate may not end up being what he wanted it to be, that ultimately David would take responsibility for the house of Jonathan. He would bless the descendants of Jonathan and that he would make sure that the offspring of Jonathan was provided for in every way that one could provide for him. Well, here he is and he's in peacetime. And what does he say? Go find me somebody so I can keep this promise. Go find me somebody. I am intent, in other words, David is intent on keeping the promise that he has made to Jonathan. He has resolved. Now, realize, the only thing that this promise keeping can do in David's life life has cost him. There is no other way. There there is nothing that someone is going to be able to come and give to the king in which he does not already have. This is an exercise of expense. He's going to expend great personal energy to make sure that he follows through. And then it's going to come at great cost to him financially and through resources because his intent is to give an estate and a blessing to whomever in Saul's house he can find. Now, why does he do that? Because this is what love is, y'all. This is what love is. Love is not just a word that you throw around. And love is not just a feeling that you have. And love is not an experience that you encounter. Even though love may encompass all of those things. Love is not even a good, healthy relationship that you're a part of. Love is foundationally, fundamentally, in the image of God, a commitment that is made. Love is for better or worse. For richer or poorer. In sickness and in health. 
Love is a resolve, a determination of the Spirit, a, a, a persistence, a, a wonderful stubbornness, if you will, to plow through all of the hardest seasons, to plow through all of the, the self-preservation and all of the, the natural selfishness that is in with all of it. It's to press through all of that to get to the other side because you are so committed to the other person. That's what we see David toward Jonathan. I am going to keep this promise because I love Jonathan. I am committed to Jonathan. I am going to upkeep my word to Jonathan. Out of all the couples that may come through my office, the ones that I have seen that have the greatest survival rate, no matter what they're encountering, and some of them have encountered some really hard stuff in their marriage, the ones that make it are the ones that come in from the beginning and they say, I'm in. I'm in. I'm committed to this. We're going to see this through. Both people say, as hard as this is, as far apart as we are, as, as difficult a thing that we have encountered, here is where we are, and I'm in, and she's in, and we're in this together, and if it takes us a year, if it takes us five years, if it takes us ten years, we're just in on this with one another. Why? Because we love each other. We love each other. And that is how God loves his people, see. That is how God loves his people. That is one of the ways in which marriage mysteriously reveals to us the nature of the very gospel, Paul says. God made a promise, a covenant with his people that he was going to use them to bless all nations. He made a covenant with them that he was going to preserve them, that he was going to protect them, that he was going to prosper them. He made a promise to them. And God was so committed to keep that promise. He went to great personal energy and great personal cost to send his own son up the hill to Golgotha to be crucified that his promise toward us might be kept. That's the nature of how God loves, man. That's the nature of how God loves. That's the, a picture of what said love is. It's determined to keep the promise. But it's not just determined to keep the promise. Hesed love is determined to reveal God's character. Look at this, okay, look down in verse 3. That question is repeated, but there's an alteration, like I mentioned. And the king, David, said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness of God? Do you see that? There's no mention of Jonathan's name in verse 3. I think this is awesome. There's this juxtaposition that takes place, in which essentially what David is saying is, my primary allegiance is not even to my best friend. My primary allegiance is really not even to the promise that I have shown with Jonathan. That ultimately, ultimately, my allegiance and my commitment and my dedication is to the Lord. And so what I want to do is not just keep the promise to Jonathan. That's important. What I want to do is I want to reveal the kindness of God. I want to uncover the character of God. That, that what he's aiming to do right here is not just show some run-of-the-mill, regular old generosity. He's not just trying to show some run-of-the-mill, regular old kindness. He's trying to show a specific type of kindness, the kindness of God, the kind of kindness you've all had experience. If you are a child of God, there's been a time in your life in which you were struggling or you were praying and you were pleading with God that he would come through. And all of a sudden something happened at work and you thought, this isn't just about a job. God did that. Or you had somebody that walked into your life and they said something to you that you'd been looking for and you'd been searching for. And they didn't even know they were saying it. And you thought, that ain't that person talking to me. I may not be smart, but what I know is God just spoke to me. 
You were in that place and you didn't know how you were going to make ends meet. And then suddenly something you had sold for more than you ever thought it could sell for. Or you got a bonus that you weren't planning. Or some check in the mail. Or some generous person in your life stepped in. And you knew it's not the person. It's not the business deal. It's not what I sold. It's not the promotion. God is behind all of that. You see, that, that is what David is doing. David is wanting to bless someone so profoundly that they know it's not David that's doing it. So that they can know that wherever they are and whatever their experiences have been, that when they see this, David isn't the ultimate agent. David isn't the one they should ultimately praise. There is one that David is being sent as a diplomat on his behalf, an ambassador. And it is the living God who has come to extravagantly uphold his promises and his goodness and his name to them. See, y'all, that is the difference between first name living and last name living. You see, if you are generous towards someone else, and in the back of your mind you are, I want them to think I'm a generous person. Or if you are kind to someone else, and it's because you want them to think that you're a kind person. Or it's because you want God even to recognize in you that you are better than most. That's called first name living. That, that, that's living so that everybody thinks Cody is awesome. That's living so that people think highly of Russell or Andrew or Daniel or Gala. What we're called to is something better than that. Something greater than that. What we're called to is last name living. We bear in us the name of Christ. And so we are to give so extravagantly. We are to love so sacrificially. We are, are, are to, to be so overwhelmingly kind in someone else's life. What they say is that wasn't Cody and that wasn't Gala or Daniel or Russell or Andrew. That was the Lord. That was the Lord. My favorite part of these first three, those two, first two questions in these three verses is what, who he asked for. Did you notice this? Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? Verse three, is there not still someone of the house of Saul? Do you see this connection here? Who's he looking for? Anybody. He's not looking for a suitable person to bless. He's not looking for a qualified person to bless. He's looking for anybody to bless. He's not looking for the person that, that is hard on their luck but up and coming. He's not looking for the person that's going to be able to repay him back someday. He's not looking for the person that's going to be the most impressive for the world to be able to take in. What he says is just give me somebody. Give me anybody. I need somebody in my life that I can bless today. Why? That's how God loves us. God didn't go looking for suitable people to bless God didn't go looking for suitable people to save. Oh, thank God, Gayla said, amen. You know why? Because I'm not suitable. And David, David, David wasn't suitable. And you're not suitable. But God doesn't save the suitable. God saves the available. He pours out his love on all of us, not because of what we can do and not because we can pay him back and not because we are particularly impressive creatures in his kingdom, but because he is willing to love anyone. He is willing to love someone. He is just wanting to pour out his love on them. Or how many of us are looking for someone suitable to bless? How many of us are guilty of that? 
oh, that is the antithesis of the love of God. That is the antithesis of the way that God has loved you. In your question, it's not who deserves what I want to give, who is suitable for what I'm going to give, it's who is available for me to give to. Who is available for me to give to. So, so we begin to hone in our definition to see that, that God's has said love is a determined love, a relentless love, a wonderfully stubborn love. And what we be, a, are able to see in David's rela- relationship with Mephibosheth is we're able to see these two effects that God's stubborn love has in our lives. The first effect that I want you to see is that determined love leads to new life. Determined love leads to to new life. Okay, so Mephibosheth has lived a miserable life. You can go and you can read 2 Samuel 4 is where we're first introduced to Mephibosheth, but he's really lived just a miserable life. So Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan. He is the grandson of Saul. And And 2 Samuel 4 says that when he's five years old, so that's my little Sarah's age, his dad and his granddad die on the battlefield, essentially leaving him orphaned. So he's orphaned, and in those days, what you have to understand is in the ancient time, the threat to the throne were the family members that were remaining in the household of the king. And so it was expected and typical that you would then go and annihilate and wipe out the entire family line of Saul. So the expectation is if Saul has died and Jonathan has died and there's going to be a new king, then the new king has the responsibility to eradicate all of the house of Saul, and that would have been Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth's nurse becomes concerned about him, and she takes him, and she begins to run with him. And she runs that she can flee because she obviously loves him, and she cares about him, and she doesn't want that to happen to him. And so she begins to run with him, and she stumbles, and she drops him. And when she drops him, it says that it cripples both his legs for the rest of his life. And so here we are 15 years later. Mephibosheth is a, is a 20-year-old young man who has lived the last 15 years of his life as an orphan in exile with crippled legs. He went literally, literally from being the heir to the throne, living in the prince's palace to living in a place called Lodabar, which is in the middle of nowhere, the lowest of the low. He's unable to provide for himself. He was supposed to be the heir to the throne, the the, the wealthiest man in all of Israel, and now he is reduced to being nothing but a mere beggar. His life has been hard. But imagine what it would have felt like to Mephibosheth when word came, that the king didn't just know that he was alive. The king wanted to see him. And so the king sends a, an envoy to go and to fetch Mephibosheth and to bring him back from Lodabar into Jerusalem, a place he likely hasn't been for 15 years while he's been in exile. And the whole way, you can imagine what Mephibosheth is doing is he's planning what he, can he possibly say to the king to prove that he, a crippled man, is not a threat to the throne, that he might spare his own life. And so he's there and he's trembling and he's nervous and he's anxious and he's sleepless and he's fighting all the insomnia as he's taking his crippled legs over all of the, the bumps of the ancient roads. And he comes in and he ends up before David. And here's a man who already lays on the floor, y'all. And it says that he lowers himself more. He lowers himself. 
he already can't stand up. And he lowers himself. He lays his face in the dirt before the king. Why? Because he understands he is owed the wrath of the king. The king is supposed to come down upon him and to kill him and to destroy him. Except his experience with the king isn't what he thought it should be. His experience with the king isn't what he expects it to be. It doesn't go the way that he expects it to go. Look at what it says in verse 7. If you understand the context, you see the power of it. And David said to him, Do not fear, I will show you kindness. There's our word. For the sake of your father, Jonathan. He was owed the wrath of the king. But David says, you're not going to know me by my wrath. That's what you deserve. That's not how you're going to know me. You're not going to relate to me through my wrath. You're going to know me through my, comp, my kindness. You're going to relate to me through my love. You're going to relate to me through my generosity. You're going to relate to me. So, so imagine the picture. Okay, so he says, I will restore to you all the land that was Saul's, all that you were going to inherit, all that was supposed to be rightfully yours as a prince, as a grandson of the king. I am going to go at expense to myself, and I'm going to make sure that you receive all of it. Do y'all see a picture of the gospel here? Do you see a picture of the gospel here? All of us are to be drugged before the king and we are owed the wrath of the king. We have rebelled helplessly against the king over and over. We have exiled ourselves from his glory and exiled ourselves from his presence and here we are bankrupt begging cripples, drug in the face of the king and the king owes us his wrath and said, he says you will not know me through my wrath. I have made a way that you will know me only through my kindness. I have let you pass through that judgment that you may relate to me through the way that I love you. And oh, this old broken world you live in, this world is not the way your father intended it to be. This is not how your father, what your father intends to be, your inheritance. I am going to restore to you through my son, my expect, my intended inheritance for you. You were born a prince and you will reign forever in the kingdom of God as a prince. I am going to prepare a mansion for you. You see the gospel. So you see what David does for Mephibosheth is he makes him rich. He makes him wealthy. He takes him out of exile and brings him into the heart of the city. He gives him the best of the best. He gives him a new life. He gives him a new life. And in that we see the motivation that's behind all of it. That had been David's experience, you see. What did Jonathan do that so knitted David's heart to him? Jonathan made sure that he spared his life from the threat of his father. He gave him new life. What had God done for David? God had found David discarded and disregarded by his family in the, in the shepherd's field. And God came and he took him and he anointed the shepherd boy, the filthy, smelly shepherd boy, the king over all of his people. He gave him a new life. The motivation in David's life 
to go to such great lengths of energy and expense on his own behalf was not so that he would get the last name. It's because God had given him a new name. God had given him a new life. And that's our motivation, see. This is uh, Orphan Sunday. So this is a Sunday that we, we very often in our history go, we stop and we, we think about the plight of the orphan in the world and our responsibility, James 1.27, to, to go and to love the orphan that's in the world. And, and I think that comes into view here. One of the things that sometimes people have been confused by in my preaching, they, think, they, they say sometimes, you don't preach the law very much. You, you, you don't, I, I'm not sure that you really think we ought to, to, I feel like sometimes you're soft on sexual immorality or you're soft on this or you shouldn't do this. Y'all, that ain't the case. I just don't think you ought to do any of it out of guilt. I don't think you ought to do any of it out of guilt. I, thought, I think you ought to ex- work yourself for the rest of your life to the glory of God out of a joy for Christ. I think you ought to upkeep what Christ has called us to upkeep because you love God. Not because you feel good. I think you ought to give to the church because you love God. 1 Corinthians 9 says, if you can't be a cheerful giver, don't give at all. I don't want any non-cheerful givers. I want people who in their hearts are captivated by Christ, who are motivated by the reality that they have been given a new name in Christ and a new life that will exist with an inheritance forever. Those are the kinds of people, man, I want to, because you will not be able to stop a person like that. And it brings into my mind something that John said in my office the other week. Most of you know John's been pretty uh, out there about just some life changes that he and Holly have, have made as a family. And he's also been pretty public that the reason that those life changes have, have really taken center stage in their life is that they desire to adopt and, and to, to, to go and to be able to, to rescue a little one out of a situation that maybe is, is less, than, less than ideal and to bring them and to show them love. And this is the phrase that stood out to me that John said. John said, you know, Cody... Somebody did it for me. Somebody did it for me. And I just, how can I not do it for somebody else? How can I not do it for somebody else? We can summarize the entire Christian life with the phrase, somebody did it for me. Christ. Christ lived the life. He did it. Christ died the death. He did it. Christ raised from the grave. He did it. Christ raised me up. He did it. Christ filled me with the Spirit. He did it. Christ has secured my my treasure forever. He did it. Christ has given me an inheritance that is not my own. Christ did it. That is the motivation of my life. I have been given new life. Oh, and bless God, may through me new life come to other people. See, determined love leads to new life. That was what David experienced. Finally, gets better yet. Determined love elevates to a new position. The end of the gospel, the most staggering, this isn't even in my notes, but it just came into my mind. The most staggering part of the gospel is that one day we are glorified and exalted with Christ. That is staggering. I am, like Paul, the worst, the chief of all sinners. And one day, all of this is going to play out, and I am going to rule the nations with Christ. See, Mephibosheth, he didn't just struggle with 
with personal, with, with, with physical problems, and he didn't just struggle with, with being uh, cast out uh, and, and being exiled. He didn't just struggle with, um, with being orphaned. He struggled with some, some internal stuff too, and, and the scripture attests to this, that Mephibosheth is a man of visible shame. So if you look at the name Mephibosheth, it literally means, uh, it, it really means a, a words of shame or someone who scatters shame. In, in, in antiquity, the way that this would have worked out, and you can see in the way that he introduces himself, so the word servant, he says, what is your servant? This is Mephibosheth talking. That means slave. Well, I'm just a slave. I, I'm, I'm nothing in front of you. That you should regard a dead dog, that was an insult that was often, uh, that was often held out just for Gentiles. Very rarely would a Jewish man refer to any other Jew as a dead dog, let alone himself, okay? Who am I? See, see Mephibosheth had, had drug around those old crippled legs for the last 15 years. And what they understand, you remember that there was the, the disciples ask about the, the, the crippled man that they see with Jesus. And they say, Jesus, who sinned, the man or his family, that he would have to live like that? Right? So they, they had this association in their mind that if there is physical ailment, physical disability, it is the result of of. of of uh, unknown sin or grave sin or profound sin in his life. And so here he is bearing the name of his grandfather, Saul, who is probably the most shameful name in all of Israel, who did not shepherd the people well, who, who led them away from the Lord. And he already bears that name. But not only that, he's dragging around these crippled legs, which were essentially like a scarlet letter that he wore everywhere that he went, saying, I am a man of shame. I am a man of scorn. The Lord is obviously unhappy with me. And everywhere that he goes, here he is with a name that says shame, with a last name that says shame, first name that says not shame, last name that says shame, and these crippled legs that are the visible evidence of the shame that he has. And then he meets David. And here he is living in exile, dragging around those legs all the time. And what does David say? You shall eat at my table always. In other words, in other words, listen to this. You shall have the chair of a prince. You shall have a place of standing in my kingdom. You shall be in my inner circle. You shall have a place in my court. You will always be provided for. You will be exalted in a place of prominence. You have, a, you have the ear of the king, a seat at the table. Anytime you want it, you have audience with me. He takes this crippled, shameful man. And he begins to displace the shame in his life with honor. Oh, how many of you can identify with Mephibosheth and you feel like you carry your shame everywhere that you go. Oh, brothers and sisters, the glory of Christ is when he clothes you with his righteousness. He is displacing in your life all of the shame of all of the consequences of all the stuff that has been in your life with the honor that is owed and due to his own name. So much so that he says, you're going to be like one of the king's sons. That is, David is adopting a cripple. Do you see this? I want you to have, have the picture in your mind. Have the picture in your mind. The, Mephibosheth, it's lunchtime. The bell's ringing up in the, up in the tower of the, of the castle. And they, they open up the big gates and in, in is 
carried this man named Mephibosheth. And he's there, and the, and the security guard stops him because obviously this something is off. And he looks over, and he can see the table. At the table is Amnon. Amnon is the eldest son of David. He would have been a striking and large man. He was the, the kind of man that was, uh, was the obvious heir to the king. He was the eldest son, after all, of the monarch. Across from him would have been Tamar. A woman revered for her beauty and apparently and obviously gorgeous daughter of David. At the table would have been Absalom. The Bible says of Absalom that from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, there was not a blemish to be found on him anywhere. Joab would have been there. Joab was the nephew of David and Joab was the commander of the king's army. He would have been shredded, a, a, a warrior's war, warrior, the kind of man that brought fear. He was the one of the ones that could kill thousands in battle before he wore down. And in comes Mephibosheth to sit at the same table. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just does not belong. And so you can imagine the security guard stopping him and saying, no, 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 no. This is for the family of the king. This is for the warriors. This is for the, the, the royal court. Who told you you could be here? Can you imagine Mephibosheth maybe shy at first? The king. I'm sorry, I'm sorry I didn't hear you. Before he gets thrown out on his head, he speaks up and he said, The king said I could come. I do that every time. <laughs> the king said that I could come. About that time, the security guard turns around and there's David, and David is motioning. Send him through. He's coming to my table. He's going to eat with me. Oh, and give him a VIP badge because he's coming back tomorrow. And he's going to be with me every day going forward. That's going to be like a son to me. He is a prince in the kingdom. Oh, you see, there's a greater feast that's coming, brothers and sisters. There is a dinner that is going to be, behold, that Revelation 19 describes. And the upset of all upsets... The upset of all upsets. It's not that Kansas beat Texas. You and I have an invitation to the dinner. Listen to it. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's us. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are what? Who are what? Invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brother who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You see, one day, one day we are going to come and 
we are going to knock on the gates of the castle of the king. And inside there is going to be a banquet. And Peter's going to be there. And Paul's going to be there. And Billy Graham's going to be there. And all of the saints that have been martyred for the faith are going to be gathered there as a cloud of witnesses, all calling out to the glory of Jesus' name. And we're going to come, and their servant is going to stop us and say, what in the world are you doing here? Who said you could come? And all of us, with one voice, will say all at the same time, the king said I could come. The king said, I could come. And Jesus isn't going to wave us through. Jesus is going to come and embrace us as a groom does his bride. And he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Oh, brothers and sisters, you have been given a new last name. How can you keep living like you're just some other person? You have been given a new last name. Oh, go and live up to the last name that you have been given, the name that is now yours in Christ, the name, the inheritance that you will enjoy forevermore with a seat at his table. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.